Good morning. You can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. For those that are visiting, we're engaged in a series and we're addressing Solomon who is pursuing life apart from God, life under the sun, and the conclusions that he comes to, which is life without God really is empty, it's meaningless, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, how powerful you are, how poor you are, it doesn't matter what you pursue through drugs, alcohol, through sex, it's all meaningless apart from who God is. I want to begin this morning by praying a very familiar psalm. You hear me talk about praying scripture, and I think it's a value. And we're going to pray this psalm together because it's a psalm about life. And when you think about this, it's a psalm about good life. It's about life when it's not so good. It's about life here and now and also life in eternity. But this psalm places God at the center instead of ourselves. And that's where we need to live. So I want to start with this. It's Psalm 23, and it should be on the screen. There we go. Let's pray this together as we begin. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. It's confession time. We need to confess that we are a people that like to be in control. Can we admit that? And we like answers that make sense to us. So part of being in control is that we have to figure out everything according to how we think it should be figured out. But that's not reality, is it? In chapter 8, there's a key verse. It's verse 14. And everything else in this chapter centers around this verse. But listen to what Solomon says, and you can follow with me on the screen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14. Here's what Solomon writes. There is a vanity, and that's that phrase again, he keeps repeating himself. Meaningless, useless, purposeless. There is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Here's what he's saying. This world is full of mystery and injustice. And the specific example he gives is that the righteous get what the wicked deserve and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. He says, I sit back and in spite of all our laws that are in place... In spite of all the righteous people, there's more injustice than ever. Have you ever felt that way? Can't figure out why this is happening in this situation, in this circumstances. And over here, why can they just navigate life like nothing matters? And the evil is just so obvious. Now, here's a fact that we don't want to admit 
But there are times when injustice benefits us and we don't mind it. Confession time. Anyone ever shop at Target? (laughs) You know, Target is one of those lists that uses very inappropriate sweatshops around the world so that we can have cheaper prices. But Solomon comes along and says things like this. In spite of all advances in knowledge and education, there are more mysteries than ever. So Solomon in verse 10 starts by attending a funeral. And this is a funeral person that attended a church weekly over and over again. And at this service, many people are saying really nice things. And yet he says, everybody knows this person was one of the most ungodly people that ever lived in this city. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Big funeral praise everywhere. He says, it it makes no sense. Everybody knows how wicked this person was. And yet in public, we're going, wow, aren't they a great person? Then it continues. Verse 11. People continue doing evil, and they keep getting away with it. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, you think they would understand our court system. (laughs) It takes so long today, in years. He says, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Courtrooms. He sits back and says, nobody's doing anything about it. And it leaves people confused and dazed. I mean, they they hammer down on some people, and we scratch our heads and say, was it really that bad? Then other people that have done incredibly horrible things, they just kind of walk out of the courtroom. Robert Frost gave a quote in light of what we're talking about this morning. Here's how Robert Frost, he's the poet that we studied back in, well, maybe you don't study him anymore for the younger ones in high school. But he defined a jury this way. Twelve persons chosen to decide who is the better lawyer. (laughs) And let's face it, we sit the evening news, and I don't know about you, but I just don't get it. And then he moves on in verses 12 and 13. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. He's saying, you know, there's some people out there doing really horrible things, and they live to like 120. And yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Because he does not fear God before God. Now, here's what Solomon says. When I sit back and I see all the confusion. And I see all the frustration. And I see how long some people live. And how short some other people live. He goes, wisdom tells me this. That true justice will be enacted someday. That God will judge. And I know we don't like to talk about God judging today. But Solomon says, God will judge the wicked and the righteous. But the key is this. We need to fear God. Now the word fear here means to honor. It means to respect. It means who do we listen to? 
It's what narrative are we applying all the things that we hear and say to. It is that fear that will separate the wicked and the righteous. Now there's two truths that we have to talk about this morning that are evident in scripture. And the first is this, that there is none righteous. If we're going to fear God, we understand that. And this is our first confession. Years ago in the London Times, there was an article someone wrote and they were frustrated with all the injustice in the world. And they entitled this article And today, if they would write it, they would call it a blog. What's wrong with the world? To that, a man by the name of G.K. Chesterton responded with an editorial. It's kind of like posting today on social media. He said, dear sir, in response to your question, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He got it. There is none righteous, no, not one. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Not some, not many, it's all. We have turned everyone, and you know he keeps emphasizing the Hebrew, the all, the everyone, to his own way. We are all sinners. But then like the song we sang this morning, the power of the cross, these words are penned by Isaiah. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, humility allows us to see the corruption in our own heart. And that leads us to the second truth, which is Jesus is our righteousness. Yes, there is none righteous, but Jesus makes us righteous. That's the core issue in fearing God. And and that truth, those truths combined together causes us and brings us to humility. And humility is the key for living in this world. It's the key for keeping Christ at center. And humility leads us to a life of generosity. Because if we understand our sin and how we are separated from God and that he declared us righteous through Christ's death, we live a very generous life. Because we know that we are his only because of his grace. But humility also brings a crucifixion. Somehow, we've got a little confused in our culture. We think that if we are true followers of Jesus, everyone's going to like us. And we forget the most dedicated follower of Jesus was Jesus, and it led him to a crucifixion. See, humility leads to a crucifixion. We, we die to self. We die to our agendas. We die to all other narratives except for the kingdom of God. And we have made a grave mistake in America. Our mistake is that we've allowed the world to tell us who we are. And fearing God, we allow God to declare us who we are. And Solomon continues in verse 15. And when we learn to fear God, here's what he says. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. So he's saying, okay... I've kind of depressed you with life saying you work, you eat, you die. There's no meaning in that. But when you fear God, you can have joy in the midst of those mundane kinds of things that are all finite, they're temporary. Someday we're going to see each other face to face and he will redeem us back into Genesis 1 and 2. We will understand what the Garden of Eden was designed to be. And be joyful, for this will go with him. 
in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Let's talk about life here. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth. It's interesting how he's sitting back at the end of life and he's describing life like, you know what? It's just really busy. It's busy with a lot of things that aren't important. How neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. And then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. It's fascinating to me. He sits there and says, you know, there's a lot of stuff God does at this world that we just can't see. We don't understand. We can't comprehend it. However, much man may toil in seeking. He will not find it out. So you can investigate, you can look, but you're just not going to know. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So Solomon is saying that life is full of mystery. And even the wise cannot figure it out. And he's telling us that wisdom is no shelter from injustice. Now this whole study we're talking about this morning, you can sum up in one word called ethics. Have you ever heard of an ethical dilemma? (laughs) That's that frustration that we feel when we cannot figure something out and we want to navigate this as Christ followers. You talk to Solomon, he'd probably say, why was I succeeded by one of the most vile kings in the history of evil? His name was Manasseh. Age 12, he came into kingship. He ruled for 55 years. He murdered members of his own family. He slaughtered thousands of people. He filled the temples with pagan idols. He was godless, profane, vicious, tyrant. And yet for 55 years, he was a picture of health. And you can see Solomon saying, why? You know, why didn't God take him out and just solve a lot of the crisis that Israel was going through? Now, you hear me say all the time that we are not defined by our circumstances. Rather, we're defined by Christ. And whenever I say that, and I hope you kind of memorize that, I always get a few amens. Now, you know what the implications are. If you really believe that we are defined by Christ and not our circumstances, the implication is that we may do the right thing and still experience oppression and justice. I mean, that's what Solomon's telling us. He says, I can't figure it out. We may live right, but still experience pain and suffering in our bodies. See, the implication is that we do not follow Christ for what he can do for us Health-wise, wealth-wise, and you can add whatever you want in there. See, understanding the true truth that there is none righteous and that Jesus declares us righteous, he has already done everything necessary that when we stand before God, we are clean, we are whole, and we are eternal. But so often we reduce life down here saying this, well, if, if we pray right and if we do the right things, then over here everything's going to go well in our way. And that's just simply not true. The psalm says it rains on the just and the unjust. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, was an incredible thinker of his day. If you know some of his backstory, he lost his wife just three years into his marriage. 
And when you read his writings, it keeps coming up and up and up and up and up and up and over and again. And, and finally, he concludes this. He says, I've looked for decades for answers. I've examined. I sought guidance. I've prayed. I've been in small groups. I've had conversations. And he says, I've never, ever made sense out of her death. And I've got to trust someone who's a lot smarter than me. Now, as much as we don't like what Solomon's saying, because we like to be in control and we like answers, Solomon says it's not, doesn't matter how wise you are, there's going to be things that you cannot explain and there's going to be injustices that you really have no control over. Now, the cynic in you might say something like this, well, if all this is true, then why should I care? Why not jump straight into wickedness, bring my death on quicker, seek to live out my appetites and Solomon says well you know I've done that and it's all meaningless it's purposeless it's empty it's no value and the only way you find value the only way you find security the only way you find joy is to fear God and today we see that in stories and history bears this out you know, most recently in the Olympics, uh, many people watched Michael Phelps win his, what is it, his 27th medal in his lifetime. And of course, the backstory is that until his Olympics, he was suicidal. He was ready to end his life. And even though he was acclaimed, he had all this glory from the Olympics, there was something missing. Until a guy by the name of Ray Lewis for football fans pulled him aside one day because he knew Michael and gave him a book called The Purpose Driven Life that introduced him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the guy's life has turned totally around and he's seeking now to make wise choices in the midst of his situations. You know, people choose lifestyles. And when they end up where Solomon says you're going to end up, we have this tendency to blame everyone else. And you need to go back to those two truths. There is none righteous, that includes you, that includes me, and that Jesus declares us righteous. So, what's our response to all this? We can sit back and say, okay, so life is full of mysteries, life is full of injustice, we got this ethics, and we got these ethical dilemmas. How do we navigate all this? Now, to be honest, Life would be a lot easier if Scripture contained clear answers to every ethical question in justice and mystery. (laughs) That's not the case. If it was the case, can you imagine the massive volumes that would exist to address every single situation? And it fascinates me because I hear people today use silence in Scripture as an argument that God really isn't interested in that. And that's simply not true. Being a follower of Jesus, how do we navigate life and make the right decisions? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, in part, it's what I call discipleship. It's not how do you navigate life being a Baptist. No, it's how do you navigate being a Christ follower? Former Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart when he talked about ethics and mysteries and how do we handle injustice, says this. Ethics is knowing the difference between what 
you have a right to do and what is right to do. I'll be honest, I hear a lot of Christians say, well, it's legal. I'm like, so? Does that mean it's right? Well, everybody's doing it. How many parents have heard that one from their teens? <laughs> yeah, so? What I like to do with the remainder of the sermon is give some practical guidelines on what I call learning to think well. I'm a big advocate that we need to teach people how to think, not what to think. That we need to give structures and guidelines and boundaries that they can navigate on their own so when they are apart from whoever they're apart from and they're out there in an unjust situation, they know how to make a wise decision knowing they don't know everything and knowing they don't see everything. Now here's the first thing I want to say. There's biblical commands. We all know that. Biblical commands are for everyone in every place, at every time. A biblical mandate transcends time and space. It was true in 1766, and it's true in 2016. It's true in 300 BC, and it's true in 2016. Here's an example. Thou shalt not steal. What that means is, whether you're rich, poor, young, or old, but, 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 you say, I, I watch the stories about Robin Hood who, who stole from the rich to give to the poor because of the injustice. No, it's wrong to steal. To take what is not yours violates God's law. So understand in Scripture there are biblical mandates. That's one of the parameters we have to put up. Second, we have to look at beyond the commands or beyond the mandates. Now, here lies a world of preferences and opinions. That means it's right for some and not okay for others. Can we deal with that? We call these convictions. Convictions are bound by space and time. And this list can go on and on and on. It involves what you wear to church on a Sunday morning. Now, some of you have noticed I haven't wore a tie this morning. And if you're that concerned I didn't wear a tie, wondering where my spirituality is, we need to have a conversation. It's hot outside. <laughs> and I took it off to make a point. Tattoos come into this. A lot of opinions about whether you should have tattoos or not. Biblical translations. Music. Big time into this. They are bound by time and space. If you go to another country, you will find out they worship very differently in terms of music. Why? Because it's a cultural form. The style of music. So with my convictions, I like telling people this. I may be wrong, and I've been wrong in the past, but here's my thinking. I have a tendency to say that a lot. I understand that when it comes to my conviction, and it may be a pretty strong conviction, I may be wrong. But here's my thinking. Here's how I got to this. And we're going to have to agree to disagree on this. Now, the filter we're talking about here is separating the biblical mandates from convictions. Now, we need to live by convictions. Don't get me wrong on that. For instance, Genesis 1 through 2, the first two chapters. God says that he created everything 
He created men and women, and he declared that it was good, which means there's dignity and value in every single person, regardless of where they're at and who they are and what unrighteousness they're involved with. So, the biblical mandate is we respect and value people who think differently than we do. But the biblical mandate also is that we don't approve of sin that destroys their lives and lives of people around them and really brings injustice into our world. The confusion in church so often is this, that we make biblical mandates our convictions and we make our convictions biblical mandates. That's the old switcheroo. We change them. And I've watched Christians just totally annihilate commands saying, but you don't understand, but you have to realize this, but, but, but. No, it's a biblical mandate. Then over here with convictions saying, well, you know, if you don't believe like me, well, Christians, all Christians, they follow Jesus, got to believe like me. Now I want to give you six questions to ask. These questions are not biblical mandates, okay? (laughs) But they help us separate these things. In fact, these six questions are based upon Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 22 through 33. These questions help me determine an intentional response when I look at the injustice, when I look at our response, when I look at the mysteries, when I try to navigate everything around me saying, what do I do next? I think about Biblical mandates, I think of commissions, and then I ask myself these questions. Hopefully they will help you as well. First, is it permissible? If there's a clear biblical command against it, then it's not permissible. I don't know how else to say that. Question number two, will it lead to peace and mutual improvement? Now, it's critical how you define peace here. For instance... We live in a very sexualized culture. Confronting immorality on any level can lead some to appear not to be peaceful. So the question is, peace with who? Me or God? You realize the ultimate goal of a follower of Jesus is to get Jesus introduced and have that person have peace with God. I mean, that is our goal. The goal is not to have people like me. The goal is to have them like Jesus. And to fall in love with him. For an example, there's no secret if you talk to me that if churches need to build buildings, I like buildings to be used 24-7. And so if GBC didn't have a building and we're going to build one, I would say we have to rethink what kind of structures we build. For instance, back at my former church at MBIC, we were beginning the conversation about what kind of structures do we build, and the town needed a library. So we entered a conversation with them. And we brainstormed what would it look like to build a kid's wing, kind of like a Barnes & Noble setting, that would incorporate the town's need for a librarian, which means every day of the week people could come, we could create some jobs, but it would be a way to invite the town into our building every single day. Now, early on in this conversation, there was a town meeting that anybody could come and ask any question they want. And I should tell you that when we started the conversation, there were some Christians 
who opposed such a thinking. They didn't want the town people to come into their building. And some left over that. So we began this conversation. And I remember this meeting. And anybody could ask any question they want. And there was a man from Mount Gretton who stood up and asked this question. Will you allow access to pornography on some of the computers? Now, there is a clear biblical mandate against sexual immorality. So I had to say no. And I explained that violates the dignity of of women, first of all, and how it just creates a whole lot of confusion in people. So he got mad and started talking about free speech and public access, and that if we would build this together and we wouldn't allow him to access pornography, he would sue. And it shut the conversation down. So, will it lead to peace and mutual improvement? Understand that sometimes people will get mad and angry at the pursuit of peace. Here's the third question. I think I'm question number three, yes. Is it beneficial, profitable, or constructive? That's a question about, it's a wider picture than self. It's not, is it beneficial and profitable and constructive to me? It's, okay, how larger neighborhood, larger country, larger world? Question number four, does it have the good of others at heart? That's a question of intent. Question five, will it cause another person to sin? Now, you notice I didn't say, will it cause another person to be offended? I find today that we just get offended at everything. And it's, can I say I'm really confused and tired about that? I just sit back and say, why? I don't get it. I'm kind of like Solomon saying, just because we disagreed, you have to be offended. Finally, the last question, does it bring honor to God? Does it bring honor to God? So as you navigate the mysteries of life, as you navigate injustice, as you are caught in your ethical dilemmas, I hope that biblical mandate, conviction, and those six questions give you some guidance on how to think well in our culture. We need good, Christ-like thinkers. Because our culture is a culture reaction. Now, of course, the trick of any practical system is that we do it over and over and over and over again. Aristotle, who was a philosopher before the days of Jesus, said, we are what we repeatedly do. You know what we call that? We call it a habit. Sometimes we call it an addiction because it takes over. But we need Christ to take over our lives. Amen? I'm going to call the band up. We're going to close with a song that really kind of elevates and honors who God is. As we do that, I want to end with how we started. Psalm 23. We're going to pray this, and it should be on the screen. Did I put it in my notes? Yeah, I did. Good. And again, look at this as a framework of all life. It's beautiful. Present, future, good, bad, yea, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But what? I am with you. The promise of his presence. So let's pray this together. Actually, let's stand because we're going to honor God's word. Let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.